Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16 this evening. Matthew chapter 16, first gospel in the New Testament. We've studied our way through a good chunk of this gospel together. And we had begun to look at chapters 14 through 18 when Dale began his series on Jonah, which he did a good job with, in my opinion. thought he handled the text well and had good application. But we'll return then tonight to Matthew 14 through 18 and pick up where we left off. I'll also say a few things just to jog our memory of what we were looking at in this section. For our opening reading, let's look at Matthew 16 and hear verses 21 through 28. So Matthew 16, beginning at verse 21, hear now the word of the Lord. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, we draw near to you. The ministry of prayer is a wonderful means whereby we make known our desires to you. You hear and answer and give grace to your people. So our desire tonight is to understand your word. Our desire is to see Christ here in the scriptures. Our desire is to receive the grace that we need as you send us out into another week. I pray then that you would glorify yourself, be with those in need in our church, and teach us as we hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the approach that we're taking to Matthew 14 through 18 is to give a broad overview of this section. Most of the events that occur in these chapters are not unique to Matthew. And it's only been a few years since we went through Mark's gospel. So we looked at several of these events in detail and tried to draw out the significance of the details of the verses. Which then allows us, whether we remember all those sermons or not, allows us to take this broad look at the main ideas of chapters 14 through 18. If we could put a title or a summary on this section, it would be that we see in these chapters this division deepening between those who belong to the kingdom and those who don't. So Matthew 13 sets us up really well 
for this section. There you had the parables of the kingdom and the well-known wheat and the tares. Or the seed that falls on the different kinds of ground. You, you have those who belong to the kingdom. The wheat. Those who bear fruit. Those who hear the word and do what Jesus commands. You have those who do not. The tares that are eventually pulled up. The seed that doesn't bring forth fruit. You have the treasure in a field. Someone would sell everything in order to obtain that treasure. The pearl of great price. Someone would obtain it or sell everything in order to obtain it. The great value of the kingdom. And who are those that see the kingdom and who are those that don't? Well, these chapters show us. And as we go through chapters 14 and through 18, we see a division that deepens. A division that continues to intensify. A hostility that, that rises against Jesus the closer he gets to Jerusalem. And yet the reality, the, the beautiful reality of those who do have eyes to see. And who follow Jesus and profess faith in him and enter the kingdom. So last time we got just about halfway through the section. We stopped about 12 verses into chapter 16. So we'll pick up tonight at chapter 16 verse 13. And one of the things that we will see or the first thing we'll see uh, as we re-enter this section is that there is contrast or there is division even within the disciples. Even among those that follow Jesus closely, this intimate group of twelve. There was a larger group that often accompanied him from town to town. But within the twelve who stuck the closest to him over these years, there's division or contrast even within the group. Sometimes even inside the same disciple. You can probably guess what I'm getting at there. But let's look as it develops. From the passage, we're going to see positive and negative reactions to Jesus here and some that are mixed. So first you have a positive response in chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, the paragraph right before the section I read. This is Peter's confession of faith and Jesus's promise to build the church. Now, I, we looked at these verses just last week in Sunday school. I stepped in and taught that class while Aaron was out of town. We just looked at those verses. I've preached on them before as well. So there's no need to go over them again. But what I would highlight for you is just this. The significance of Peter's confession of faith in verse 16. Where he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what some have drawn attention to is that Matthew's gospel underscores that title, Son of God, more than Mark and Luke. So Matthew seems to put a, a spotlight on the title, Son of God, and then ties it in to key events in Jesus' ministry. And so let me just highlight a few of those in order to see two big ideas connected to the title, Son of God. One of those ideas is that this is how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. This is how he serves as the faithful Israelite that we talked about this morning in Matthew A. Very early in Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 15, when Jesus has to go to Egypt in order to escape the murderous Herod. He's like Moses, like Israel in the Old Testament, escaping from the murderous Pharaoh. 
escaping from those who would seek to kill God's son. And so as Jesus goes down into Egypt and then later returns to the land of Palestine, you have the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. In the next chapter of Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. So like the generation that finally entered the promised land, first one couldn't, second generation did. At what point did they enter? Through the Jordan River. That's why Jesus chooses that place as a place of renewal for the nation. And when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, you have this voice from heaven, Matthew 3, 17, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And then in the next chapter, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan, who says to him, what? If you are the son of God. In Deuteronomy 1.31, commenting on Israel's time in the wilderness makes this point. God carried you as a father does his son. So it seems that there's sonship language connected to Israel. And here now is the son of God retracing Israel's steps, but succeeding where they failed. And it all stems, of course, from Exodus 4, where God said concerning Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, now here's the son. So when Matthew uses the title son of God, it wants us to see in there a significant the Son, the faithful Israel. But not only that, Son of God also communicates this idea of deity. That the Son shares the nature of the Father and therefore shares in the divine identity. Matthew eleven twenty seven reads, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So you see, being a son means intimate knowledge of the Father, a closeness with the Father that no one else shares, an ability to reveal the Father, which highlights hence that Jesus shares His nature. Furthermore, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, we read these words in verse 63. But Jesus remains silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now notice, by the way, that's the same language Peter uses when he confesses his faith. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. So the high priest says, all right, is that you? And Jesus says, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. It may not be at first blush apparent to us, but it was crystal clear to the high priest. When Jesus said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, and when Jesus then described himself as the Son of Man, that was equal to a claim to deity. So much so that they were willing to immediately put him to death. Part of the explanation stems from what we've already seen. 
When Jesus says you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One, again, that is a citation of Daniel 7.13, where the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds of heaven into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receives from him authority to rule over the world. The Son of Man is at the same time separate from the Father. He's distinct from the Ancient of Days. And yet the Son of Man rides on the clouds of heaven. That's what deity does. That's what God does in several of the Psalms. He's a distinct person, and yet he shares the same nature. He shares the divine identity. And so we conclude, when, when God announces to the disciples that Jesus is his Son, he is affirming Jesus' true identity as the divine Son and the true Israel. And here's why we take this story then, this first paragraph here from Matthew 16, so positively for Peter to say that is for Peter to perceive Jesus' true identity. And Jesus, or excuse me, and Peter most likely here functions as a spokesperson for all of the other disciples. This is who they think Jesus is. And that's a wonderful profession of faith. So that's positive. But now, in the very next paragraph, you have a negative event. So we began tonight by reading these verses. And we saw there in verse 21, Jesus saying that he needs to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die and be raised on the third day. So they've just professed, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Okay. What kind of Messiah is this? What does it mean to be son of God? Or how will Jesus execute his office? How will he function there as son? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and on the third day raised to life. And this is too much for Peter to handle. Verse 22, he pulls the Lord aside and he says, never, this will never happen to you. And so, so in verse 22, Peter rebukes Jesus. Which then leads to Jesus in verse 23 rebuking Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's why I say there, there's division even within the same person. He knows Jesus is Messiah and Son of God, but he has a drastic failure to perceive exactly what that means for Jesus' work. So much so that he is rebuked as Satan. And Jesus gives a little clue into Peter's error. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have merely human concerns. I think what he's getting at is, Peter, when you think Messiah, when you think Son of God, you're thinking of rulership, you're thinking of judgment, but you're not thinking of how that has to come to pass. That suffering and death lead to resurrection. And those are Old Testament themes. That didn't just come out of nowhere. Those are Old Testament themes that may be hard to perceive in the way we now see them post-cross, post-resurrection. But nonetheless, Jesus expected Peter to see. And Peter could see glory, and Peter could see power, and Peter could see putting down the Gentiles and, and ruling the nations. But he couldn't see the way to the rulership, which was to go through the way of the cross, that Jesus would turn the kingdoms of the world upside down and go about this mission in a way that they could not perceive. 
And so Jesus goes along to say, if you want to follow me, this is what it means to follow the Son of God and profess faith. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself in those dreams and aspirations and come after me. Be ready to lose your life for my sake. We haven't gotten here, but some have speculated that when Jesus is on trial and Pilate offers to release someone to them, that they desire Barabbas, who we read was a thief or an insurrectionist or a murderer, depending on uh, the translation in the gospel account, very likely that he was one of these Jewish freedom fighters, who in the attempt to liberate uh, Israel from the Romans had committed murder and committed an insurrection and landed himself on death row. And that's the one the people want. That's the leader they want to be released to them. Not this Jesus who preaches a way of humility leading to death. So the disciples see, and yet they do not see. Division and contrast, even in their own responses to Jesus. So we've had positive, we've had negative, turn the page into chapter 17. Here we have a mixed response. The disciples on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus once again, or, or perhaps we should say for the first time this gloriously, uh, reveals his di divine identity. They started to perceive it. So now Jesus will reveal it to them. Now how do we know? Where do we get this idea that he's revealing divine identity here? Well, they ascend a mountain and Jesus is transfigured before them. He changes his appearance. And then a bright cloud covers them. Now, if you were to go back and read Exodus 24 and 40, you would read the story of Moses and Joshua ascending Mount Sinai. When they ascend the mountain, they see God's glory. And a cloud then comes down and covers them. The same cloud that later overshadows the tabernacle. So Jesus is doing the kinds of things with his disciples that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, did with Moses and Joshua on Mount Sinai. It's a revelation of divine identity. And here's the thing. Peter somewhat grasps this. That's why he says in verse 4, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you. One for Moses and one for Elijah. And that word shelters could be translated as tabernacles. So just like Moses and Joshua went up on the mountain, they saw the glory of the Lord. And then we went down into the valley, we built the tabernacle where the glory of the Lord dwelt. Okay, Lord, I see who you are. It's good to be here with God. Let's build a tabernacle. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But I think that's where Peter then oversteps the mark, gets over his skis, we might see. And while verse 5 is not a direct rebuke, God doesn't say, Peter, you're wrong. I think there is still an implied rebuke when he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Peter, you've seen rightly who he is. But if that's who he is, don't put him on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah bear witness to him. He is the ultimate fulfillment and should be given a place of greatest honor. So I think there's a little bit of a rebuke to Peter. He sees and he doesn't get it all quite right. It's a mixed response. But by the way, the main point of God's declaration is when he says, This is my son whom I love. 
With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That echoes the baptismal declaration. This echoes what we read in Psalm 2-7, that the Son will rule over the nations. We also read similar ideas in Isaiah 42-1. My servant in whom I delight, who brings justice to the nations. So God reinforces Jesus' role. He is the ruler of the entire creation. This is who he really is. He's going to govern this glorious revelation. This is the truth. But the way will come about through the way of the cross and then the empty tomb. So Peter, you see that Peter see ultimately, see all the way to who he really is. A mixed response. And then lastly, in this section, we just have, quite frankly, a negative response. So in verses 14 through 21, we read of the failure of the disciples to exercise a demon. Jesus comes down from the mountain. And in verse 16, we find that there is a group of disciples who could not exercise a demon. So perhaps these are those who did not ascend the mountain. We do read Jesus took Peter, James, and John. So only three went up. So the other nine are there down in the valley. And they cannot exercise this demon. The father brings his son and says, cast out this demon. Now, interestingly, in verse 17... Jesus' rebuke reads this way. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? In this phrase, you unbelieving and perverse generation, it recurs several times in Matthew. So we could say, well, well he's just rebuking the disciples because they didn't exercise the demon. But most of the time when this phrase is used in Matthew, it, it, it is used with a wider reference. It's, it's the people in Israel who don't believe. So it's interesting that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, and yet he appears to give a general rebuke. Why is this? Well, he could be saying the crowd doesn't believe either. So the disciples fail to exercise the demon because of unbelief. And Jesus, who knows everyone's heart, says, well, you know what? You didn't believe it either. Or it could be that he is addressing the disciples directly. But at this moment, they represent the people. And so Jesus gives this rebuke, which is usually addressed to the nation. Why rebuke the disciples then in that way? They have great privilege. They are so close to Jesus. So if those who are the closest to Jesus cannot believe enough to exercise this demon, well, what hope is there for the crowd? I mean, if the disciples can't get it, what hope is there for those who aren't seeing the same thing? So it's just once again a way of summoning people to see who Jesus really is and to place their faith in him. And later the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says in verse 20, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Jesus basically says, you need to trust me. You need to place your faith in me. You need to see who I really am. And if you do those things, 
then you will succeed in what you try to do. Now, I know these verses sometimes feel almost discouraging because maybe on the one hand, we're like, well, do I have this great faith? Or I don't see mountains being moved, so I must not have faith. On the one hand, let's recognize moving a mountain, that is a, that's a figure of speech in Jesus' day. It's a way of referring to great accomplishments. So if you haven't literally moved a mountain, don't be too discouraged. It's a way of just saying you do great things when you believe in me. And then when Jesus refers to the mustard seed, again, maybe you're discouraged. Well, well, I wish I had more faith. I wish I could do more great things for Jesus. Jesus' point is to say, look, a mustard seed is small. It's proverbial for the smallest tree in all the earth, as another gospel account reads. So you don't need an elite status. You don't have to be in the inner circle. You don't have to be extra close to Jesus. You just need to put your faith in the right object. And if you do, then Jesus says you can accomplish great things. And so he wraps up this section by once again predicting his death a second time. He's continuing to reorient the disciples. This is the true nature of my ministry. This is the true nature of your discipleship. This is what you need to put your faith in. So there's contrast even within the disciples. Now, for the other thing we'll look at tonight, in the last few minutes that we have together, we also see contrast between the old and new. As we end chapter 17 and move into chapter 18, you have contrast between old and new. The division is deepening between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. He's now set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is what he came to do. So let's begin to leave behind the old and look forward to what is coming. And we see that in these stories that populate the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 18. And let's just jump through them quickly. And I think we'll see this thread that holds them together. In verses 24 through 27, the last story of chapter 17, you have this question put to Jesus doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, what Jesus says is, all right, verse 25. Yes, he does, they replied. So when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? What is Jesus saying? Kings don't collect taxes from their children. They only collect taxes from their subjects. So on the one hand, Peter, we don't have to pay the temple tax. Why? Because I'm the king. And those who follow me are the children of the king. You have a status in the kingdom of God. You have a status in the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, as he says over in John's gospel, you can tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it. Talking about the temple of his body. That physical temple, that's passing away. You're going to tear this temple down and rebuild it. And then I'm going to rebuild the temple in my church. In the place where the spirit dwells. So the old is passing away. The new is coming. If you're in the kingdom, you don't need to pay a temple tax. You don't need to pay a religious tax. Let's leave behind the old. Let's move forward into the new. If you have eyes to see now, interestingly, by the way, Jesus, still living in that society, says, so that we don't cause offense, go, catch a fish, take the coin, and pay the tax. 
So Jesus still operates within the structure in order to avoid giving offense. But his vision is towards the coming age in the kingdom. And that is what completely dominates all of chapter 18. So if you look at the headings in your Bible, you probably have things like the greatest in the kingdom, causing to stumble, and the parable of the wandering sheep. All of these are held together by Jesus' concern for those who belong to the kingdom and the way these little ones in his kingdom are treated. So we can actually just run through these uh, quite quickly. Verse 1 uh, introduces these collections of stories with the disciples' question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers in verse 3, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be a disciple in my kingdom, you have to take the lowly position, verse 4. My kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And that pushes against ways of thinking in Israelite society. That pushes against ways of thinking in the wider world. Again, Jesus is pressing this division. My kingdom is different from the kingdoms of this world. Become like a child. Be humble. Be dependent. And then you will enter my kingdom. Don't worry about who the greatest is. We're all taking the lowly position. Then in the next paragraph, beginning with verse 6, Jesus ups the ante. He highlights the heinousness of causing one of these little ones to stumble. And then in the next verses, warns his followers of stumbling blocks they might encounter. The well-known section, better to remove your hand or your foot if it keeps you from entering the kingdom of God. Nothing should prevent disciples from entering the kingdom and avoiding the fires of hell. So that then in the last section there, beginning at verse 10, Jesus again refers to the little ones. So that's what holds all three of these paragraphs together and pledges his own interest in saving people from destruction. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, to rescue people from these fires of hell, because he's the good shepherd who would leave 99 sheep in order to seek and to save the one that had wandered away. And this is how Jesus reflects the character of the Heavenly Father, who, according to verse 14, is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Again, what is Jesus doing? I am like the Father. I share his identity. I'm summoning people to enter my kingdom. Leave the old behind. Enter the kingdom. Look towards the new that God is doing. Then in verses 15 through 20, Jesus addresses how sin will be dealt with in the kingdom, in this church, in this new community of God's people. And it ties into our theme because, again, this is a paragraph that highlights the difference between insiders and outsiders. Now Jesus gives instructions on how we deal with sin in the church. But the function is to make a distinction between those who belong to Jesus and those who don't. So Jesus gives a process whereby one brother or sister might speak to another person regarding their sin, a person in the church. If that person will not listen, 
then the brother or sister may bring two or three witnesses. And again, this echoes the court language of the Old Testament, which is why processes like this are sometimes referred to as the work of church courts. If the offending brother or sister will still not listen, then the prosecuting parties should tell it to the church. And keep in mind, at this point, when Jesus says the word church, this is what we studied in Sunday school, the people would have heard the reference to the assembly, the gathered assembly of Old Testament Israel. And how, by the way, was the Old Testament assembly governed? By elders. Remember Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law says, you're going to wear yourself out trying to govern all these people. Appoint elders to deal with groups of people and elders that they can refer cases up to, almost like a Supreme Court type structure, and you will be the one who handles only the most difficult cases. When Jesus says, tell it to the church, he's saying, do this process through Israel's structure, through the church's assembly of elected elders. And then if they still refuse to listen, then you would exclude them from the assembly. And that's what we've been driving towards tonight. That's the point of me bringing out this paragraph. Treat them, verse 17, as you would, a pagan or a tax collector. What's the end result when people won't repent? There's a distinction between those who belong to the church and those who don't. And as time goes on, that distinction becomes more and more obvious as God's kingdom manifests itself so that the chapter concludes with this well-known parable of the unforgiving servant. You've got a king who forgives his servant an impossible debt. And then that servant goes out and refuses to forgive a fellow servant a minor And again, the whole point is to say, what is the nature of those who belong to the kingdom? Who belongs to the kingdom and who doesn't? Those who are forgiven and who in turn forgive. And it was interesting, I never noticed this before until studying for tonight, that that parable of the unmerciful servant follows the passage on church discipline. So that's a good reminder to us of the spirit, of the attitude that should guide us whenever we discuss or have to do something about other people's sin. That we would first remember our own and how forgiven we are. And that if we had to do this process, we would do it like what Matthew 7 says. We'd regard the beam in our own eye before dealing with the splinter in someone else's eye. But again, the parable ends how? The stark contrast between those who belong to God's kingdom and those who don't. With a lesson on what life in God's kingdom looks like. And a stark contrast between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. Or between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom that Israel's religious leaders are trying to build. Jesus is making clear the demands of his kingdom. So how then? Will Israel respond? And I would close with just these two simple thoughts of application. If these chapters show us anything, it shows us the nature of Jesus. This is what our Jesus is. He's crucified. He's powerless. He gives up his power in order to save us. And yes, now he reigns, king of kings, 
Lord of Lords, the basic Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. But he reigns as one who had power taken from him in order to save us in faith and grace and humility. So then what is, secondly, the nature of Jesus' kingdom and of you and me as its citizens that we are those who are forgiven and therefore forgiving? Humble and, of course, dedicated to following our Savior no matter what path he leads us down. So let's get that. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this overview of these chapters. There's so much here that we could dig into deeper, and that would be edifying. But I pray for us as a church tonight that we would get this sense of your kingdom, who you are as our Savior, and how we might follow you. What does it mean to trust and obey you? What does it mean to live as your people? It is that we see who you really are. And we live out this life that you've called us to live. So to shape us as robot church more and more into the image of Christ, form these virtues in us, make this our witness to one another and to the world, forgive us of our sins, and give us grace. And be with us through the week, keep this church safe, watch over our people, meet their every need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.